0: The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind the curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts.
1: And I'm Carol Anderson. Welcome to this next installment of our podcast Preludes, our introductions to the Utah Opera. On stage productions. We are currently in the throes of rehearsing for Rachel Portman and Nicholas Wright's opera version of The Little Prince. And we're gonna talk about The Little Prince, the author of The Little Prince, and the music of The Little Prince. There's, it's a simple piece, but there's a lot to say.
0: Carol, we did this piece in 2019 at Utah Opera, and it's 2023 as we record. That's kind of close for contemporary operas. Were you surprised to see it reprogrammed this soon after 2019?
1: Absolutely not. And this is why, because in the conversations about programming, I was one of the first to say, let's do Little Prince again. Uh, I jumped right into that. You know, we have these conversations a couple of times a year where the the opera production team gets together with marketing usually, sometimes with education, just to kind of see what, uh, as we come, talk about operas that we want to do what we haven't done uh we see what kind of surfaces and to your point of asking this question we typically try not to repeat one of the great classics especially any sooner than seven to ten years we right want to give there's a, time between there's the a proper
0: rotation in the in the industry
1: yeah and and there's a lot of rationale for that but i really had it 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 came to me just it felt like a thing to do, and part of it is because the children that are in the show have grown up, and we have a whole new set of children. It's not right. like we have the same personnel in the opera chorus. That was one of the things that kind of stuck to me that it was going to be a whole new event because it was a whole new set of children. Uh, we partner with our uh, wonderful Madeline Choir School, and there's a ghostlight interview that'll be coming out with uh, uh, the director of the choir school choruses, Melanie Malenka and some of the children who have been in the chorus in the past. They're such great partners, and it felt like it was just not too soon to feature that group again. We also, I think, had people who loved it so much the first time around that they wanted to hear it again. We've also had this pandemic, which kind of made time feel really strange. And so actually, Night uh, 2019 feels far more than five years ago. I can't it does. speak for you. I think, I, I think, well, you say it does for you as well. So I th- yeah. feel like a lot of us lived several years in that year.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, I think this particular piece bears repeating for a lot of reasons, all of the ones you just said, but also because the source material is so important. I mean, what's more popular than this book, The Little Prince? Maybe the Bible? Maybe Shakespeare? I don't know. This is really very famous material, right?
1: It is incredible the universal connection that this story has with all humanity. It is the most translated story Aside from the Bible, it's been translated into over 500 languages and dialects. I was looking through a list of all of these. It's amazing. I clearly need a lot more information about linguistics because there were so many languages I had no clue about. It has been translated into um, language. There's a language. Oh, I wish I could remember it. It's spoken. It's one of the like Amazon languages, uh, indigenous languages, and it's spoken by less than 2,000 people. And it's been translated into that language. Someone has translated it into that tribal indigenous language. Someone has translated it into that indigenous language. It's been translated into Klingon.
0: <laughs> I couldn't believe that when I saw it in your article. That's incredible.
1: Uh, it has been, you, uh, Kevin Nakatani, my colleague in the education department, found a picture of the Klingon cover to use in a presentation. It's legit. It's been translated into Klingon. The translations in themselves are kind of fascinating because uh, as I was reading about translations, I read that um, one of the challenges is that a lot of people have chosen to translate from the English translation because more uh, people across the globe are familiar with English than French. Uh, And so they... Uh, Their familiarity with English led them to translate out of the English, and it's uh, there's a whole. I could do a whole podcast about um, the translations because there's um, a whole set of there's five tests I think that they use for the accuracy. There's certain scenes in the opera, in the opera, in the novel that they pull out the micro, the magnifying glass, and they look. To see how accurate the translation is for these scenes, like the sheep scene, is one of the five tests. And if those are accurate, then they can trust the veracity of that translation, the um, the pristine nature or the faithfulness of that translation. It's but, it's um, like
0: trials in the magic flute. You have to get past them to
1: right, right, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I don't mean to go on about the translations, but uh, one of the things that I thought was really quite lovely, and this kind of anticipates more of what we're going to talk about uh one of the more recent translations was into an arabic dialect called Hassania. it's spoken by um the berber it's a berber language which is uh, a, a language of the indigenous people of north africa of the mm-hmm. sahara and that's really significant because the story takes place in the african desert ostensibly we could think it's the the sahara it doesn't specifically say the sahara by name and the author spent a lot of time in this Sahara Desert region, particularly in Morocco. So the fact that it finally was translated into this dialect is um, kind of brings it full circle with uh, the author's experience, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's experiences of the North African desert as a pilot. And like I say, this is anticipating all the things I have to say about that author.
0: Well, let's, let's, let's get you there because you just mentioned the author and look, it can be said that everything any author writes is to at least some extent autobiographical. And there's a lot of him in this story, but talk a little bit about him, his story and this story and how they connect.
1: Yeah. So, um, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry and I'm for the, I found out that his friends called him saint Ex. so I'm going to call him saint Ex just because his name is a mouthful.
0: Thank you so much for that. I'm going to do the same.
1: Sentex so uh, is our author. He was born in 1900 and uh, died in 1944. So a short life. Sentex had applied twice for to the Naval Academy of France, and he had failed the examination both times. So he ended up actually becoming a member of the Air Force. He was a pilot. He was in and out of the Air Force. He also worked for private aviation. He was in charge of the Argentinian airmail service for some time where he met his wife Consuelo. He uh, also flew air routes from France to North Africa during the war. And and in 1935, he actually uh, crashed along with a co-pilot in the North African desert. And this is one of the most seminal experiences I think that we see brought to the pages of The Little Prince. He spent four days marooned essentially with um very little water i think it's he had like some grapes and a couple of oranges a little wine a thermos of coffee and a bit of chocolate and after four days in the desert they were rescued by a desert tribesman and so this uh came into he related this event in one of his in his memoirs which is called wind sand and stars and then of course this influences the experience of the pilot who crashes in the desert and meets the little prince. Um, in, in 1939, he was in the French Air Force. And after France collapsed, and the Vichy regime took over, he actually fled, he became an expat and came to the United States. And that's where he spent uh, the next two years in US and Canada kind of um, advocating for the war effort to try to drum up American support. As you know, the Americans didn't enter the war until 1941. And so while he was in the United States, that's when he wrote The Little Prince.
0: Some of the parallels right there and the story you just told of his life are very clear how they reflect in the story of the little prince. For example, the pilot, super obvious. The pilot in the story was also a male deliverer. The pilot in the story also crashes in the deserts of Africa, as you mentioned before. There's also some connections to his family, though, right? Because the the young boy in this in the book and in the opera is definitely described as golden-haired. And that relates kind of specifically to somebody that was close to him, right?
1: Yeah, his younger brother Francois died at a quite young age. Um, Saint Ex was only seventeen when Francois died as a as a young child, and uh, Francois was called the Sun King. And so uh, this experience of losing his brother at an early age stuck with him, and I think in in the um, the the little prince is always shown with this halo of golden hair, and his golden hair is described very overtly in the book. So, and then. Uh, According to Consuelo herself, she wrote her own memoir, and she uh, declared that she was the inspiration for the Rose, which is bold of her. But it yeah. makes sense because the Rose, as a character, is vain and self-absorbed, and it kind of <laughs> uh, and and I think that there is evidence that Consuelo also was uh, someone who was very vain and self-absorbed. They had a little bit of a tempestuous relationship. In fact, interestingly, it wasn't his first uh fiance. He was engaged earlier to the French poet Louise de Villemorin, who and I encountered her work several times in a art song work. Uh several of her poems were set by important French composers, including Francis Poulenc. But uh when they they actually uh broke up and part of he was in and out of flying throughout his life, and at one point Louise de Villemorin's family insisted that he not fly because of the danger. And so, you know, of course, this was clearly something in his DNA that he needed to do. And I wonder if that didn't contribute in some way to the demise of that relationship.
0: Well, certainly it contributed to his actual demise, right? Because the last thing he did on this earth was fly. He got involved in the war effort, finally, in 1943, got trained on a plane that was a little bit more advanced than what he had flown previously. And he crashed over the ocean, I believed, and was never seen again, right?
1: Yeah, it was actually over, he was flying reconnaissance out of Corsica, so he crashed, he was lost in the Mediterranean, uh, and um, was declared missing in action, presumed to have been shot down, we don't know. In yeah. 1998, a fisherman found his ID bracelet in the ocean off Marseille, and then uh, a few years later, I think we in 2000, they found wreckage of a p-38 which was said to have been they think was his divers found it in the on the in the ocean floor so it's not really confirmed that that is the wreckage of his plane but that is the belief and of course no one really knows how his plane was brought down was it pilot error there was not any evidence of him being shot down but uh, you know this was 60 years later so who knows what shape that wreckage is in
0: I don't want to speak ill of the dead but he might have been in over his head with that particular aircraft who knows I mean no question that he died as he lived though flying was always a major part of his self image I I'm interested in the ways he's written his life into this of course it's Consuelo as the rose I mean he wrote so many other parts of his life into this story why not that one I also find it fascinating that one of the most important parts of the story is when the prince finds a a a a group of roses and finds out that his rose isn't really all that unique. I wonder if there's something coded into that based on their relationship. I think the the tie-in with the brother, Carol, is interesting for me because I think the prince feels like a visitation in the opera and in the book. It feels like a spirit, at least at first. He doesn't seem to be of this world. And of course, you learn that he's absolutely not. But... The idea that the prince comes from another plane, from another place, I think tracks with what happened to his brother. It's so literal some of the ways his life is in this story.
1: Right. Because, you know, when someone passes at such a young age, it's almost like they were a spirit who just graced the earth for a a brief moment. Right. And then were too much for the – they're too pure or too good for the world in a way. I've heard that said sometimes when a child is lost. And um, definitely the prince – the figure of the prince is sort of pure, uh, uncomplicated, not really um, connected to the under understanding of uh, the adult world. This is a big theme in the opera about how we lose as adults our inner child. And the prince, so in a way, the prince is autobiographical as well. He's the other side of Santex. Santex the pilot is the adult who's busy with the minutiae of trying to solve his crash issue, fixing his plane. Leave me alone. We got to get water. And the prince is trying to remind him of the child within.
0: This young Santec slash Francois character. Yeah. Yes. Well, Carol, let's back up a little bit more to those years he spent in the States, because that's when the little prince came into being. Talk about how that happened for him.
1: Yeah. So um, Santec spent... Uh, as I said, the years, I think it's like 1939 to 1941-ish in the United States and Canada. He lived in New York City part of the time, uh, various places, but uh, he found the city rather stifling. So they, Consuelo and he rented a little cottage. I'm using quotes in the word cottage because it was a 27-room cottage on (laughs) Long Island. And that's where he actually uh, did a lot of the work on The Little Prince. He was known from all of his friends to... Doodle all the time. He would doodle on napkins, on receipts, on tablecloths, and he would often doodle this little boy. And maybe it was Francois that he was doodling, this little boy with the crazy hair, the, the poofy hair. And so eventually, his friends said, "You need to, you need to write a story about this little little boy, and let's collect these illustrations." So when you look at any version, a published version of this story, you have very often you have the original syntax illustrations and they figure quite prominently in the production that we do as well so uh it was he had to get out into this area of long island and get away from the bustle of the city and get away from the the demands on his time from the people in the war offices and such and and find the time to write this story that i it felt like in a way i wonder if it wasn't a a therapy kind of thing for him you know some kind of version of journaling to kind of help him heal from seeing his homeland, destroyed, all of that, that, you know, there's bound to have been, there was a lot of pain associated with War II for everyone, but... I think of a French person watching their homeland be t- overrun and become a place that they don't feel welcome and they don't understand anymore. And again, maybe that's another thing. The pilot was lost and maybe a cent felt lost because his homeland didn't exist as he knew and loved it. And then he was in a, he was a stranger in a strange land, if you will.
0: The story does seem inevitable when you look back on it from now. Definitely. I agree with you. Speaking of the story, we all know it. We've read it. How does the story in its original form compared to the libretto? What is the story of the opera? Is it different? Is it very similar?
1: It's quite similar. Uh, the only real difference is I think we have just a few less planets for the prince to visit. So the story is uh, the pilot crashes. He's in the desert trying to figure out how to solve his problem. And this strange little boy comes out of nowhere and connects with him. And so he gets to know this little boy and he finds out where the little boy came from. So the little prince came from an asteroid called B612, which was tiny, has three volcanoes and a rose. So he is um, trying to further his relationship with his rose. And it's, um, this kind of goes along with the complicated relationship that Santex and Consuelo had. The rose says uh, to go away, find out essentially more about life and come back to me, and then we'll be able to uh, grow our relationship. So he uh travels from planet to planet meeting very strange characters most of whom are adults who have forgotten their inner child the last planet that he visits the penultimate planet that he visits is a planet where there's a lamplighter and the lamplighter in i don't recall in the book how it how i connected with the lamplighter but in the opera he's the lamplighter seems to be the character that has the most sense of all the adults that the little prince has met
0: the most self-aware
1: yeah, so the lamplighter has this job to turn the lights on and off, the lamp on and off as the sun rises and sets, but the planet that he's on has gradually over the years begun to spin much faster and so he's turning the lamp on and off every minute now and it's exhausting but he's he's deeply committed to that duty. And he tells the prince that the place to go to get his answers is Earth. So the He heads off to earth and the second act of the opera is his time on earth. He crashes or he lands in the desert. And so it's confusing because he's not seeing maybe he doesn't run into urban earth. There's no people in the desert where he lands. And so he's just kind of wandering. And I think it it feels almost as if the pilot is the first person he's met in the time, which is almost a year that he's been on that planet earth. Uh, He then meets this group of roses and that's when he realizes that the rose that he thought was so special and unique is just one of many roses in the world. Right after that, he meets a fox. And this is one of the most pivotal scenes of the opera, of the book, of anything. And this fox is, if you look at the illustrations, its he's always illustrated with very long ears. And he's based on not a fox that we might imagine in uh, our Eurocentric way, you know, a little red fox, a little red, red-tailed fox with a cute little Almost cat ears. He's a fennec fox, which is the desert fox. And the ears were part of what makes a fennec able to survive in the desert a fennec fox because they would could he could absorb a fox can absorb moisture through the ears and also radiate heat. So the ears are his an evolutionary adaptation that makes this fennec fox able to live.
0: They're his swamp cooler.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And so uh, the little prince meets the fox and connects with the fox. And there he learns the most important lesson of all, which is that I'm going to paraphrase it. We don't love something because it's special. It's special because we love it. Mm -hmm. So a person or an item matters because it is loved and not because it's unique. And so the little prince realizes that the rose is special to him because he has cared for the rose and he loves the rose. Uh, and then, um, when we get to the end of the story, the prince disappears. You can—it's not really clear. Does he disappear? Does he die? Is he absorbed into the ether? It's not—it's not expressly stated one way or another. So that leaves you, the audience, to kind of figure that one out. And it's that's held up in the opera as well. We don't really know what happens to The Little Prince. But the pilot is, of course, forever changed and forever reconnected with his childlike self by the lessons he's learned from this little being.
0: So if you looked at this project, the opera adaptation of The Little Prince from a remove, it might have seemed like an odd choice to have Rachel Portman do the score. She's mostly known in America to most people, I would say, as a film composer scores for movies like Chocolat, Sider House Rules, English Patient. She's won an Academy Award. She's She's the first
1: woman composer to win an Academy Award for Best Score. for Exactly.
0: So I think people associate her with film scores. Now, you have quoted John Williams in your article as saying that film is the opera of the second half of the 20th century, so maybe it does make a certain sense. But how did Rachel Portman come to be involved with this project?
1: Well, yeah. she. Um, I, I actually have a quote from her from an interview kind of explaining it. She had four children at the time that she was uh, searching for her next project. She wanted to make a children's opera. Because of her children, she felt like there were a few operas that were directly addressing a childlike audience, a child audience. Uh, he was working with, a. she was working with a producer named Jim Keller, who also worked with Philip Glass. Philip Glass had originally been approached by Houston Grand Opera and Francesca Zambella to write this Little Prince setting. And he did not feel that he was the correct person for the project. So he said, this is not really interesting to me, but what about Rachel? So it was this connection that got, that brought the project to Rachel Portman's uh, doorstep. And she says about opera and film, she said, in particular in dramaturgy and in pacing, they are alike, because a lot of what I do on a film has to do with pacing. It really helps to have that experience. I think I realized that very young, that as a composer, if I had a gift at all, it was for telling stories, at least laying behind stories and providing an ambiance and a disposition that underlies the whole thing. And as I was writing The Prince, I had the book open beside me, and I was thinking, do I feel the same inside this music as I did when I read the book? That was her test did it ring true and she actually as she was creating the music she went on a trip to northern africa and was in the desert in a very deserted part of the desert on a camel and she was just humming songs to herself music that this landscape around her was inspiring and that was the genesis of some of the music that came into this opera
0: the score to this piece carol is I think, pure and uncomplicated, exactly the words you used to describe the childlike character of the prince a few minutes ago. Do you think the score does justice to the guileless quality of the story, to the idea that adulthood means the loss of innocence? Do you think the score helps that story be told?
1: I think it does because it just stays out of the way of the message. We have beautiful melodies. It's not an opera devoid of melody at all. I mean, the tunes are glorious. Some of the most beautiful music is the where the prince looks at a sunset and it has some melodies that you'll take away with you as an audience member. You'll remember these melodies. It's also accessible tonally and, and structurally in a way that just lets us Uh, inhabit the text. We're not trying to understand any sort of cerebral approach to music, which is not to say that she's dumbed it down. It's just uncomplex. I also love the uh, fact that children's chorus and children's performers feature so much in this. We have a children's chorus of 24 and it can be whatever number, you know, a company chooses to put on stage, but the lead role of the Little Prince is played by a child, an un, whether it be a young uh, female child or right. an, an, but it's an unchanged treble voice. Right. Uh, and it, it's it's not gender specific, even though uh, in the casting we don't have to be specific to a gender, even though the prince is referred to as he throughout, and that's because you just need that simple childlike voice, which uh, both uh, young children of all genders maintain until uh, puberty and um there was some conversation i i read that um about originally having a female grown soprano take on the role of little prince so you would choose maybe someone who had a smaller body type who could play like a play as a child but would actually be an adult performer rachel portman felt that this was not the direction to go because she felt that would distance children from the story she wanted children to be able to relate and the most important part of that for her was to have children on stage so to make a little prince be played by an adult was going to work against that goal of hers this meant that she had to think a lot about how to write for the little prince because the things you write for a, an adult with more developed physicality and more developed stamina are not what you would write for a troubled voice they don't have the same breath control they don't have the same uh, range as a color to a soprano or a baritone. And so the range is, it's it's probably just slightly over an octave, and the phrases are simple. The music is simple, it's not simplistic, but it's accessible for a child to learn. Uh, it needs to be a quick child, it needs to be a smart child who has excellent musical skills. It's not as simple as, you know, a folk tune that we might have learned in music class in grade three. But uh, there's not a lot of long soaring phrases that exploit the the extremes of the voice. I, I'm
0: I feel like we're both struggling to come up with other words than simple when we're talking about the writing. We are
1: definitely workshopping simple today.
0: Well, and I don't, and we, neither one of us mean it as a pejorative. I want to state that very clearly. We don't mean that at all because I think with a story like this, particularly the parts of it that are sort of picaresque and like Gulliver's travels, where there's all these different things happening in quick succession, it would have been really easy to indulge weirdness in the score and weirdness in the vocal writing and kind of make it, more surreal rather than pure and uncomplicated, like you talked about before. And I think the choices made by Portman in this score were the right ones. This story needed a very direct kind of delivery. And if the score got in the way, I don't think that would serve the story well. So that's my attempt to explain why we're struggling to find the right words because she made a choice that was on its face maybe... Not very adventurous, but it was in the end right. I'm not sure if you agree, Carol.
1: No, I absolutely do. And she she is inherently not a composer of spiky cerebral music. She even states that she went to Oxford and they tried to force her into a mold of atonality and you know serialism, 12-tone music. And she just didn't believe that wasn't her voice. That wasn't what she had. And so she um pushed back against that. And and maybe that sort of sympathy simpler uh, we're back to simple again jeff but uncomplicated (laughs) just own it (laughs) yeah just uh maybe that's what brought her ultimately to film in a way because she could she talks about wanting to tell stories and she could just um use her gift for melody and for accessible harmony to um underscore these stories that were uh charming stories lovely stories emma is a charming good-natured beautiful film and so her voice underneath that story is perfect same thing with chocolat you know and it's charming it straddles this beautiful fine line between charming adorable and twee right in a less craft craft in a composer with less craftsmanship this music could be twee it could be precious in, the, in a pejorative sense, and it's not. She finds the exact line of what is appealing, what is unadorned, what is pure, and tells the story in a very pure way.
0: Somewhere in the space between precious and charming is generous, and I think that's the place she finds, and I think it works really well in this score. You have an interesting perspective available to you right now, Carol, I'm not sure if you're exploring it or not, but I'm going to ask you to, having been involved in both productions of this, it's the same production, obviously different people involved, but it's the same kind of piece of art. Four years apart, I realized that we had COVID in between, which added a decade, but what's it like <laughs> to approach the same piece of art that's in such close succession? And are are you noticing things in a different way? Are things new? What where do the, What are the fresh things that are occurring to you the second time around?
1: It's actually, and again, I don't mean to keep referencing COVID, but uh, it has certainly affected my recollection of things that happened in the before times. And so this was January of 2019. And I remember loving the production. I remember the wonderful cast we had, and we've been able, lucky to be able to feature not just the uh, local children, but also our resident artists who are, there's great roles for, um, emerging artists, opera singers. And so our resident artist quartet has been a part of it both times. But uh, there's something so, it feels so healing right now to come off of such a trying time and to just sort of bathe in the simplicity and purity of what Rachel Portman and Nicholas Wright created. It's actually fun too, because uh, our in a different way our, for, our conductor for the 2019 production was Jim Lau who had been involved with The Little Prince since its inception back in and he had his conducted it very many times and so it's a different perspective to have a conductor who's approaching it as a new piece uh, Ben Manis has not done the piece before and um, you know just to not have to to feel that feel that sense of discovery has been a little bit different, because it's not discovery of sharing. As much as I love being with people who have who know the piece from the composer's mouth, um, I feel that way about pieces that I've done as premieres. That I love to be able to share that, but it's also nice to see what happens when people come to it with no preconceptions, and then just recreate it as we do Mozart, as we do Verdi. We don't have Verdi hovering over us at the rehearsals telling us what is what. We have stylistic guidelines of history that inform that, but it's it's been different to go in this sort of discovery mode. What is also interesting is um, the way that Melanie has cast the children, This year we have multiple children shows. And so she has uh, kids from fourth through eighth grade and she likes to spread the opportunities around. And so this year, the smaller children in the program at the Madeline Choir School were in La Boheme. So we got an older group for the little prince and the costume shop has commented how much taller all the children are. Right, And our little prince, while he's still obviously a, a an unchanged voice, both he and his understudy, who is a, a young girl, are quite a bit taller. I would say a good um, seven inches taller than the original tiny little prince, who was on the younger edge uh, younger end of that spectrum. So having older children has been a different experience.
0: Well, whether or not you saw this in 2019. You've got an opportunity to see it in 2024. How do they do that, Carol? What are the dates for this production?
1: Well, we open on Saturday, January 20th, and we have performances on the 22nd, 24th, 26th, and 28th. The Monday and Wednesday performances are at 7 o'clock. The weekend performances are at 7.30, with the exception of Sunday, which is a matinee. And great tickets are still available for all performances. As always, the weekend, the weekday performances are going to have the best availability, but uh, we've got lots still to come. And uh, I think even if you saw it five years ago, every time you see a show with a different cast, it's a different experience. And I think that you will discover new things if you saw it then. If you know the book well, to have it translated in yet another language, this time the language of music, adds another dimension that uh, maybe you didn't realize was missing.
0: Don't forget you can always hear Carol talk more about the production right before the performance. Where can they do that?
1: Yeah, so I do a free uh pre-concert talk, prelude lecture, if you will, a prelude to the opera at one hour before a curtain on every performance day. And then we have a question and answer period with our artistic director artistic director Christopher Macbeth after every show this is a nice short show it's only two hours lo- runtime and so it's a great opportunity to come to those Q A's ask Christopher questions but he always brings guests from the cast to that so uh depending on if it's a school night or not the little prince may join but otherwise you'll have um, we have a nice cast who will take their turns in coming in
0: Carol's pre-show discussions are incredible imagine getting to hear our brilliant Carol talk about this stuff without me getting in the way.
1: Uh, now, the interesting part is that I play more music for that. And so you get to hear <laughs> me talk about the show in the context of the of actual musical excerpts.
0: Make sure to check out utahopera.org for information about The Little Prince and everything that's happening in the Capitol Theater. And I want to take this moment to thank everyone who's listening at home and on the go. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, review the show, wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us get new listeners and learn more about you. Be sure to visit USUO.org for information about upcoming performances. We hope to see you soon, maybe even at The Little Prince. Until next time, I'm Jeff Counts.
1: And I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening.
0: The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony, Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.